We've got the rookie in the sound booth. He's good now. All right. I, I don't think I need background music for this. All right. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were marked long beforehand out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who do not keep to their own domain, but abandon their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under the darkness for the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way are these indulging in gross immorality and went after strange flesh as exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Yet in the same manner, these men also by dreaming defile flesh and reject authority and revile an angelic majesties. But Michael the archangel when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare to pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said instead, The Lord rebuke you. But these men revile the things which they do not understand, and the things which they know by, indistinct, by instinct, like unreasoning animals, by these things they are destroyed. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay they have rushed headlong into the air of Balaam, and perish in the rebellion of Korah. These men are those who are hidden reefs in your love feasts, when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves, clouds without water, carried along by the winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting upon their own shame like foam, wandering stars, for whom the blackness forever blackness has been reserved forever and about these th- also enoch in the seventh generation from adam prophesied saying behold the lord came upon with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all of the ungodly of their ungodly deeds which they had done in the ungodly way and of all the harsh things which the ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are the grumblers, finding fault, following after their own lust. They speak arrogantly, flatter people for the sake of gaining an advantage. But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they are, were saying to you, In the last time there shall be mockers, following after their own ungodly lusts. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying to the Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. And have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire. And on some have mercy, fear, 
have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you in the presence of, stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. This is God's word. So, I'm reading this after panicking, realizing I'm supposed to preach, and going, huh, that's going to be fun. But I went and I was looking, said, you know what, I don't think I've ever really studied Jude in super depth. And so as I'm reading this this week, I was amazed to see how relevant it is for this day and age. Because when you think about it, this book was written about 2,000 years ago, right? It's written after Christ has come, but it's still in the first century BC. So we're talking a minimum of 1,900 years. I'll round that to 2,000. But even as we read this, we can see issues that the church faces today right? And that reminds me that in Ecclesiastes, the Bible talks that there is nothing new under the sun. So all the things that we have seen and all the things that the church is dealing with in this day and age, nothing is particularly new. Nothing is something that God has not anticipated at all. He's seen it all, and it's all going to be handled. So as we look at this, I'm just going to walk through. Uh, We're going to take and break out some of these little pieces, and we're going to talk a little bit more about them. So starting with verses 1 and 2, we have what would be a very standard salutation. This is what you write when you write in a letter to someone, right? Hello, my name is, good to talk to you, etc. The author of this book is considered to be a half-brother of Jesus, the other half-brother, Um, James is the one that we tend to think of more often, but Jude would actually be um, Judas, which was an unfortunate connotation at the time when he was writing this, and still is today. Um, So the reason that we call it Jude is because the folks that were translating didn't want to have the improper connotation of Judas Iscariot wrapped around a book of the Bible. Um, So... That's who we're dealing with. Stand his uh, verse 2, May grace and mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. That's a very standard old-fashioned greeting to bring to everyone. And then comes, to me, the first interesting part. Verse 3, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt it necessary to write to you, appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. What we have here was not the letter that Jude wanted to write. He wanted to write a letter about the love of God, about you know something more uplifting and upbeat, but he was hearing things from whatever church this was. Okay, Now, there's no strict 
delineation in here of where the, what church was written to based on some other, uh, the context and who he's talking to and how he talks. Um, it is believed that this would have been the church in Antioch or the church in that general area. We're going to see later, it's very much um, referring to common Jewish Christian or Jewish um, historical events. And so this would be written generally to um, Jewish Christians, probably from Antioch or somewhere between Antioch and Jerusalem. Um, so Jude didn't really want to write this letter, right? He wanted to write another letter. He wanted to write a happy letter because, well, as we'll see this and we read, it's not particularly a, a happy letter, but it's an important letter, I think. Um, and obviously God thought it was important because he made sure that one, it got written, and two, it got kept, and three, it got included in our Bibles. So this is a lesson that God has for us even today. So verse four starts, he has to talk about the unpleasantness. Certain people, anybody else use that, like to use that term even today? Those certain people that I won't say their name, and everybody's like, uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, so I don't think that he was speaking of anyone that was unknown, okay? They may have been, at least some of them were known, um, because he's going to talk how they just sit in the love feast later. Um, But it was not a a mystery that these people existed. They have come in unnoticed, okay? When the church, the church is supposed to be a welcoming place. And we always should strive for that. But we have to make sure when we're allowing people into leadership positions that we know what they stand for. Okay? It's if you don't make sure you know what someone stands for, then if they go off the rails, it looks like the church supports that. So this is what was happening here in that the people that were getting up and preaching, like me or whoever, were not preaching the actual gospel, but were preaching things that they wanted to say and twisting the gospel. Um, It is um, interesting to note that those who were long beforehand marked out for condemnation. These people were, God knew they were coming, right? And he knew that the church was going to deal with this issue pretty much forever. I mean, it's like we said, this could be written to us today. There's not something super unique about that church that we only saw then. We see this now. So we need to be on our guard and be aware that those prophecies that we see in both the earlier epistles and even in the Old Testament, because we're going to talk about Enoch a little bit later, those prophecies still hold all the way through. Okay? Now, we look in, finishing up verse 4, there's one of those $12 words in there, licentiousness. I like big words. My wife likes to make fun of me. But 
I know licentiousness is bad, but I decided I probably should know exactly what it means. So according to the dictionary, licentiousness is lacking moral restraint, particularly of a sexual man. Okay? So whatever they were doing was definitely not good. Now, licentiousness has its root in the word license, and Paul talks about license um, in, uh, I think it's Colossians, um, when he talks, you know, should we sin more that grace might increase, may it never be, right? So that's the type of thing that Jude is dealing with here, is taking the gospel and saying, we can do whatever the heck we want because God saved us and he's going to forgive us. We can do horrible things. No, you can't. That is not how Christians are supposed to behave. And th- those are the things that these people were dealing with. Sorry, that was Romans, not Colossians. All right. So now we're going to look at verses 5 through 7. And this is one of those places where you can really see that the target audience was Jewish Christians. Because all of these examples are Jewish history and and very well-known Jewish history. So as we look at it, we're going to see God punishing those who who fail to believe and who change, right? And so we look, and he talks about after coming out of Egypt, the Egyptians were punished, and additionally, those in Israel were punished, okay? You see that um, the end of verse 5, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. That's not just talking about the Egyptians in the Red Sea, but it's talking about some of the issues that the Israelites had while they were wandering in the wilderness and those that were killed. Um, And we'll actually go through that specific example in just a few minutes. Um, He then talks about fallen angels. So you have angels all started in heaven, right? Before time began. But then you have... Satan and the third that have fallen, and God has them trapped in the lake of fire. Um, eternal bonds under darkness. That's, you know, that's pretty specific as where he has them and what he has done to them. And then you have Sodom and Gomorrah. Everybody remembers Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Lot deciding that, well, that's greener land. I'm going to go live over there. And, uh, then discovering that the people who lived there were, well, I'm not sure sinful. Obviously sinful is the word, but I'm not sure it's quite strong enough. Um, they, they took sinful and went to the extreme that they could find and, and followed their worldly lusts. It's, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah is very much, I believe, a example of what happens when people and a government... Reject God completely. You know, the natural, if you let human beings without any moral compass run as they will run, you end up with Sodom and Gomorrah. And I, it's terrifying when you look at it. So then we get, so that's verses five, six, and seven. Three very Jewish examples. I mean, Anything that had to do with Abraham, the Jews 
that was part of their history. It was taught in school. It was taught in church. It was ingrained into their DNA as close as you could do that. So that was a um, very obvious um, Jewish history. Obviously, coming out of Egypt, and that's kind of a big event for the Israelites. You don't have the nation of Israel without that event. And then Satan and the fallen angels is, you know, that's the universe. So it's everybody's history. Okay. So now we get in verses 8 and 9, which is kind of a little interesting, not quite sidebar, but an interesting just little note. Um, As he begins to describe the men who he is warning about, okay? So verse 8, Yet in the same manner these men, also by dreaming defile the flesh, reject authority, and revile angelic majesties. So that's three very specific things. Now, we use the word there of dreaming. Um, It could also be translated maybe perhaps a little more accurately delusions. Delusions of what they think that God had told them to say and what they were supposed to be doing. Then we have rejecting rejection of authority. Okay, These men were not just saying and doing the wrong things, but they were actively fighting against the people that God had placed in the church. And they were actively going against them to say, no, you're wrong, I'm right. This is where we need to be doing, what we need to be doing and where we need to be going. We see that in churches all the time, right? Some little group of the church thinks that we need to go and do whatever it is over here, And the leadership is trying to follow God this direction, and they're pulling this way, not being supportive, trying to take off after things that are good for them. And so they reject the authority that God has placed them under. And if you read, when you read our church constitution, there's a couple of times when it is mentioned very specifically that we are under the authority of the leadership for different positions. And that is to remind us that that's what we need to be doing is making sure that we are under that authority and following that path. And then there's the reviling angelic spirits or angelic majesties, sorry. Um, This is to deny the holiness of God and his messengers. Um, not a place that you want to be. And it's actually interesting because verse 9 gives an example of that. Um, Michael the archangel. Okay, so most of us know Michael is like up there in the, the hierarchy of angels, right? Which is kind of a thing. When he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses. So, This is the only time that this particular action is mentioned in the Bible. But if you'll recall, when Moses died, God took his body away and no one knows where it is buried. Okay, That's back in Numbers. But here we have 
evidently Michael and the devil arguing over that burial spot. So why would that happen? Well, after reading three or four commentaries on this particular passage, because it was a little difficult, the general consensus that I found was that the devil wanted to give the Israelites access to the body of Moses, where it was buried, in the hopes that they would worship it. Okay? So, and that makes sense, right? The, at the time, the people of Israel already have a propensity for worshiping false gods. Golden calf, right? They're already showing that they will do that. Given how important Moses was to bringing them out of Egypt and what a historical figure he was, it would have been exceptionally easy if they had known where he was buried to turn that into a shrine where everybody basically had to go and pay their respects. Be, you know, it's like Mecca type thing. You, you just have to go and do that. And then it becomes an object of worship. But we're not supposed to worship people. We're supposed to worship God. And so that is part of the reason that, or perhaps the reason, that Moses' body was hidden, but the devil is arguing with Michael the archangel, no, we need to show people where they are. We need to show this. We need to keep this alive. Now, I firmly believe that he did not have any good intentions for that because, well, he's the devil. But Moses, as, or excuse me, Michael, as he's arguing, Michael himself does not rail against the devil directly. Okay? He is not due anything specific. Instead, he says, the Lord rebuke you. Okay? He does not call upon any personal power in himself. He calls back to God to say, the Lord rebuke you for what you are trying to do. Huh? As we move forward here, he continues to talk about these people. Verses 10 and 11 are, in a lot of ways, pretty harsh. Um, these are, as he's describing these folks, he's not pulling a lot of punches. It was very interesting, um, as I was reading this last week, how many times I saw comments that this book is probably not something that we see in the modern church a lot because it is so blunt. Now, we tend to like to preach on the love of God and things that are, are gentle and, and showing us the good aspects. But God is completely perfect. And being completely perfect not only means completely perfectly loving, but completely perfectly just. Justice sometimes demands punishment. Okay? So, the fact that these next few verses are quite harsh is just to remind us that God is completely perfect, not perfect in the ways that we like and we can ignore the ways that he doesn't. So, verse 10 and 11 
the reviling things which they do not understand, and the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoned animals, by these things they are destroyed. That's, that's pretty much pretty harsh. He is calling them animals. Okay? At the time, your education meant quite a bit, right? And to call these people unreasoning animals is very much of a, you need to not follow these people because they're just going to lead you off the edge of a cliff type of statement. And then he gives three different examples. We have Cain, Balaam, and Korah. Okay? Cain, basically our first murder. Actually, absolutely our first murder. It's recorded anyway. But it's interesting to, to think about why this example was given in this context. Okay? What was Cain's basic problem? Cain's basic problem was disobedience. He was commanded to bring a blood sacrifice. But he was a farmer. So he brought what to him was valuable. That would be his grain, right? But it was in direct disobedience to God, and God showed his displeasure when he made that sacrifice. Then he gets mad, turns around, and I always love this term, rises up against his brother. Yeah, it's a nice way to say he murdered him. But the root of this, the root of Cain's issue was his disobedience to God when God gave him a very specific command to bring a blood sacrifice. That starts the chain of events, not anything else. It's his disobedience to God. Okay? Then we get to Balaam. And this is an interesting one, particularly in the modern age. Um, so if we read this, it says, And for pay they have rushed headlong into the air of Balaam. Now, most of us, when we think of Balaam, what do you think of? Talking donkey, right? Great Sunday school story. I love it. Incredible. But when you read that, it's very interesting to note that the reason, that was the second time that the king had called for Balaam, okay? So the first time King Balak calls for Balaam, he sends his princes, and if you want to look at this, we can, let's see, it's got this. It's Numbers 22 through 24 if you want to go peruse while I'm talking. Um, as the king's advisors come, they come the first time, and Balaam says, okay, I'm going to pray about this. I'll get back to you in the morning. And he does. And God speaks to Balaam and says, you cannot curse these people because I have blessed them. And so Balaam gets up the first time, and that first day he says, I'm sorry. God has blessed these people. I cannot curse them like the king wants them to. Because Balak had looked out at the Israelites coming into the land of Canaan and said, they are rolling over everybody. They are just crushing everybody. 
Balaam, I know you speak to God. I need you to curse them. Balaam speaks to God, and God says, don't even go there. Just don't go there. So the princes go back. Balak's like, uh, no, you don't understand, guys. We got to have him curse the Israelites. And so he sends them back. And he sends more of them and higher ranking ones. And they go to him and they say, the king is telling you, you need to do this. You need to curse the Israelites. And Balaam's like, guys, he's, he would have to fill my entire house with gold and silver for that to happen. Well, he's a king. And so the prince has promised him to do it. And so that's when he gets on his donkey and goes to meet the king. But he never gets there because of the story we all know where the donkey can see the angel of the Lord with a sword ready to smite him. And as I was reading it, I had not realized how many times that donkey saved his life. There's at least three. And finally, he beats it the third time, and that's when the donkey starts talking to him. But the donkey saved his life twice before that. So after the donkey talks to Balaam, the Lord opens Balaam's eyes. He sees the angel and goes, oh boy, sorry, sorry, falls on his face, repents, goes home. But then he gets another call and he ends up going back. But the third time he goes and they basically drag him there. Um, He's not very much a willing participant at that point because he's figured out this is not a good idea. But he's standing on the mountain with Balak the king to say, and the king says, curse them. And Balaam pronounces blessing upon them. Okay? But the reason that he was almost killed by God is for the money he was going to take to make that curse in the second time. We see that, unfortunately, in a lot of modern televangelism. Send me money, I'll send you this thing. My favorite, I think, is the water. I'm still trying to figure out how the water, their blessing water and it works any better than regular water. But it could be cloths, it could be prayer, many hens, um, healing services. These are all things that are, you give money, you get something back from God. And God is speaking specifically against that. And then you have, finally, Korah. Let's turn to number 16. I'm going to read at least parts of this. Um, because this one I found very interesting. Because we don't, you, I mean, we know this is here. Um, it's kind of usually covered in Sunday school as we're talking about the um, wanderings in the wilderness. Uh, but it's usually just a real quick blip. This is actually a fairly long story, very involved um, to talk about. Um, so we're going to read this. Um, I'm read sections of it. But the thing that we're looking at here is what motivated uh, Korah and what the eventual punishments were, um, which, spoiler alert, were his deaths, and a lot of other people. Not just him. He 
took down a lot of people at the same time when he was being punished. All right. So verses, let's start at verse 1. We're going to read just a little bit here. Now Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, and the son of Levi, with Dathan, Dathan and Ibrahim, the sons of Eliab, on the sons of Peth, the sons of Reuben, took action. And they rose up before Moses, together with some of the other sons of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation, chosen in the assembly, men of renown. Okay, so this is not just one guy. This is a couple hundred are coming to tell Moses that you got to go. Okay? We don't like how you're bringing us, what you've done to us. You got to go. And they said, assembled together, verse 3, against Moses and Aaron and said to them, you have gone far enough for all the congregation are holy, every one of them. And the Lord is in their midst. So why do you exalt yourself above the assemblies of the Lord? When Moses heard this, he fell on his face and he spoke to Korah and all his company saying, Tomorrow morning the Lord will show who, he is, who is his and who is holy and he will bring him, bring him near to himself. Even the one he will choose, he will bring near to himself. Take, do this. Take censures for yourself, Korath and all your company. Put fires and lay incense upon them in the presence of the Lord tomorrow. And the man whom the Lord chooses shall be the one who is holy. You have gone far enough, you sons of Levi. So this is Moses saying, okay, I know God chose me. Kind of had a burning bush to prove that. bunch of miracles which we call plagues but really they were acts of god he was confident in what he was doing right and he said okay let's you can come and you can ask the lord if you're right or if i'm right at this point i think i'd have run but hey that's just me it's you know everybody tweets their own and core is going to have his issues here in a minute all right, so he indeed comes, okay? We're going to skip down to verse 12 here. Moses sent a summons to Dathan and Abraham, the sons of Eli, but they said, we will not come up. Okay, so right there, they are now in conflict with God's chosen leader. They had just told him, ain't doing it. Not doing what we're supposed to do, Okay. Is it not enough that you have brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey to have us die in the wilderness, but you would also be lorded over us? Indeed, you have not brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey, nor have you given us an inheritance of fields and vineyards. What would, you, would you put out the eyes of these men? We will not come up. Now, I will give you that at that point in time, they are wandering in the wilderness, and it doesn't look good. I mean, it's desert. It's real, like sand everywhere type desert. But God is still feeding them daily, right? 
God is still blessing them with water in the middle of a desert, enough to feed hundreds of thousands of people. That's not a little bit of water. And the reason they're wandering around in the desert is because they rebelled against God. They're blaming Moses for their actions. Right? Okay. Verse 15. Moses became very angry and said to the Lord, Do not regard their offering. I have not taken a single donkey from them, nor have I done any harm to any of them. Moses said to Korah, You and your company be present before the Lord tomorrow, both you and they along with Aaron. Each of you shall take his fire pan and put incense into it, and each of you will bring his censure before the Lord, 250 fire pans. Also you and Aaron shall bring his, each shall bring his fire pan. And so that's what they do, right? They come up the next morning. You've got Aaron and Moses on one side, team A. Team B is Korah, Dathan, and what was the other guy's name? Abram, Abiram? I don't know. They're on the day and 250. So if you're just looking at numbers, okay, if you just put this to a popular vote, they got 250 versus two. But that's not how God works. God has his elected, appointed, whatever term you want to use. He has his man in charge of Israel, and he's going to support him. Now, verse 20, God starts to speak. And this is where we start to see that God is not just love and joy and peace, but he's also justice. Okay. Verse 20, The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Separate yourself out from among this congregation, that I may consume them instantly. Okay, I think the good Lord be ticked. I mean, he's talking about, you know, just everybody's gone. Not quite Thanos' finger snap. It's a little bit more targeted, but I think that's, that's what we're talking about. He's talking about they're just gone. That's what he wants to do. But you know what? Moses and Aaron intercede for those people, Right? Even though I'm looking at this, if I'm Aaron and Moses, I'm really tempted to just say, okay, this will be backing up. <clears throat> Do your thing. But that's because I'm human, right? These men knew that they needed to intercede for God, to God, to protect those people, right? So... Moses and Aaron fall on their face. O God, thou God of the spirits of all flesh, when one man sin without be angry with the entire congregation. God wasn't just talking about destroying the 250. He was talking about wiping out Israel. Okay? He would have started over again with Moses and Aaron and their families and built the nation of Israel up from that. Okay? So... Moving forward, 
The Lord spoke to Moses again, saying, Speak to the congregation, saying, Get back from around the dwellings of Korah, Dathan, and Abraham. And so Moses rose and went to Dathan and Abraham and the elders of Israel following him. And he spoke to the congregation, saying, Depart now from the tents of these wicked men and touch nothing that belongs to them, lest you be swept away from all their sins. And so they got back from around the dwellings of Korah, Dathan, and Abram. And Dathan and Abram came out and stood in the doorway of their tents, along with all their wives, their sons, and their little ones. All right, here we go. Verse 28. Moses said, By this you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these deeds, for this is not my doing. If these men die the death of all men, or if they suffer the fate of all men, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord brings about an entirely new thing, and the ground opens up its mouth and swallows them up with all that is theirs, and all of them descend alive into Sheol, then you will understand that the, these men have spurned the Lord. Here it comes. Then it came about, as he finished speaking all of these words, the ground that was under them split open, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them and their households and all the men who belonged to Korah with all their possessions. And so they were all swept down to Sheol, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. Ow. Now, the sciencey part of me wants to figure out how that all worked. Because, basically, we have a giant sinkhole that opens up under a specific group of people, swallows them up, and then seals itself back up. I have no idea how that worked. That is absolutely a God thing. But part of my brain is going, that's really kind of cool. God's power is amazing. And he uses it to bless and to curse. Okay? And to discipline us. This is discipline in pretty much its harshest form, but it is discipline nonetheless. Huh? So, we'll continue on. If you read in verse 35, the 250 other men, they get consumed by fire. Okay? More God's discipline. And God says, okay, I want the Israelites to remember this. So take those, those bronze pans that they had, and I want you to turn them into part of the altar. Right? So if we look at... It's verse 38. And for the censors of the men who ascend at the cost of their lives, let them be made into hammered sheets of plating for the altar, since they did present them before the Lord, and they are holy, and they shall, this shall be a sign for the sons of Israel. And so they go ahead and do that for them. Right? Now, one would think that this would probably have been enough and people would have just been okay with Aaron and Moses leading them. Yeah, no. 41, but the next day, all the congregations of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron saying, you're the ones who have caused the deaths of the Lord's people. Really? Really? I, yeah. I, I don't know what to say. These people come 
verbally attack Moses, demand a confrontation. God judges them, and the rest of the Israelites are still blaming Moses and Aaron. I think this is one of those things where you just get to understand that those in leadership, pastors, elders, you're never going to be right to everybody. Just never going to be. There's always going to be somebody that's, that's blaming you for what's going on. Again, we see in verse 44 after this, um, this grumbling that the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Get away from this congregation that my, I may consume them instantly. And they fell on their faces. And the Lord, Moses said to Aaron, Take your censer and put it in the fire and lay it in, in, on it. Then bring it back quickly to the congregation and make atonement for them. For wrath has gone forth from the Lord and the plague has begun. Moses took it as Moses had spoken and ran into the midst of the assembly. For behold, the plague had begun among the people. So God was on a roll. He was starting to, to punish the entire remainder. But Aaron and Moses are standing there, interceding as an example. Okay? Uh, the plague had begun among the people, for verse 47. So he put on the incense and made atonement for the people. And he took his stand between the dead and the living, so the plague was checked. But those who died in the plague were 14,700 besides those who said had died on the count of Korah. And then Aaron returned to Moses in the doorway of the tent of meeting, the plague having been checked. All right. So this was kind of a long aside to talk about characteristics of the false teachers because we're using Korah here as an example of what the people in the church in Jude we're dealing with, okay? So what are the char- some of those characteristics? Pride. I don't want to be under anyone else. I should be on top. Selfishness. I want all the things, right? Greed, lust for power, and most importantly, disregard for the will of God, okay? God had set Moses and Aaron up as the leaders of Israel. And he had made it very clear, right? Between the plagues, opening the Red Sea, water from rocks, Moses up on Mount Sinai, there really was no good reason to doubt. Now, obviously hindsight 2020, we weren't there, but there was no good reason to doubt that God had set these men up to be the leaders of Israel. But Korah thought he could do it better. Okay? He went on the attack to say, we can do this better. You guys need to go and not be there. That disregard for God's will is m- the main thing that got him in trouble. Right? He didn't approach... Moses and say, we, we would like to change these things. We would like to do this different. I know, you know change the marching songs to the Beach Boys, what, what have you. He just came and said, I want full control. I don't care that God puts you in that place. So now if we look, flip back to Jude, and we're looking at verse 11, these is, this is one of the examples he gives as the description of the false teachers that are coming into the church, okay? 
And those are things that we need to watch for. So, pride, selfishness, jealousy, greed, lust for power, and disregard for the chosen path that God has set a church on. Okay? So if you're looking at someone who's in a position of authority and they say, we're going this way, and you see that God has said, we need to go that way, you need to speak up. We all need to speak up. We all need to be willing to say we disagree. Okay? Now, the Bible is very clear that with, with anyone in that, you're supposed to go to them one-on-one first. Then take a brother, and if that doesn't work, then you take it to the congregation. The Bible is very clear on that. But we should all be willing to tell each other, I think you're wrong, let's discuss this and have this talk so we can decide and be on the same page. Because none of us wants to be Korah at all. At least I don't. So, All right. We're going to finish up here a little bit. 12 and 13 are descriptions of the false teachers in um, some fairly flowery and metaphorical terms. Um, but of the first thing to note is the beginning of verse 12. These are men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts when they feast with you without fear. When we have people amongst us and we don't challenge them, we are doing them and us a disservice. You need to be willing to go to people and say, we need to talk about your position on this. Now, it does not guarantee that we are ever going to make headway with everybody. But we need to be willing to have that discussion because if we don't, if we don't challenge people on them, they assume that we can agree with them. And that's not a place where we want to be. We want them to understand that we are for the truth, not for their incorrect positions. And then he describes them with some interesting metaphors. Um, I find it interesting that we have clouds in the air, trees in the water, um, and then space. So he's covering all the major natural environments. It's also interesting to me that two of them have to do with water. So you have clouds without rain, and you have trees without fruit. Now, how do I get water from the trees without fruit? Trees are exceptionally thirsty. They require a lot more water than pretty much anything else. And this is actually, um, let's see if uh, different translation has with stone fruit. Stone fruit trees are even more specifically um, water hungry. Okay? Remember, Israel is desert except for some of the, the places near the coast. So anything having to do with water is very, very serious. So you want to take extra notes of that. Um, then you get to the waves of the sea and the wandering stars. Cast, excuse me, the wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. Comets wandering in space with no goal, no control. That's not a very great description of what you would like to be described at, I would not think. Then we go in 14 through 16. um, 
are a bit interesting for me because this is where he starts to go back and he again refers to the Old Testament. We're going to look at Enoch here. Um, where he talks about how these people and that they're going to exist has been prophesied. So verse 14, about these things and about these also Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied saying, behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones and executed judgment upon all to convict them all of the ungodly of their ungodly deeds, which have been done in ungodly ways and all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are the grumblers finding fault, following their own lusts, speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. Seventh generation from Adam. That's a long ways back that God's making these prophecies, right? Again, we're back to nothing is new under the sun and nothing surprises God. They know he knew this was going to come. And then we get some descriptions of what we need, we can be on the lookout for. Grumbling, okay? Now, grumbling here is going to be more of the, you know, grumble and not do anything, not talk about it to someone else. Gossip, those sorts of things. Also, finding faults. It's a real easy for us to decide we don't like something. We don't like the color of the walls. We don't like, I don't know, color of the pews. But we're unwilling to do things to change them. We need to be very careful that we don't work on that. And when we see people that are like, I don't like whatever organizational thing in the church, but they grumble, but they don't speak up about it, they're causing dissension among the church, and that is a dangerous place. Following their own lusts, i.e. following after themselves. What works best for me? What makes me happy? You know, I like the, the, the new fancy songs, or I like the old classic songs. What I like, be careful that you're paying attention to what God has for the entire congregation, not just things for you. Finally, speaking arrogantly and flattering people to get an advantage. Now, how many of you like to be told that you're, you look nice today? Okay? I have two honest people in the congregation. Great. <laughs> Flattery is not bad unless it's designed just to gain an advantage. Okay? If, you're not, if people are telling you things, but they're not acting on those same things, that's a sign that you should probably check to say, okay, is that, was that statement just to make it so I like him, so the next time he says something, I'll follow him, or was it genuine? Okay. And the arrogant speaking, I think we'll just, most of us recognize when somebody's just running their mouth. Okay. Now, if the book ended here, that'd be really depressing, right? So fortunately... We've got the rest of the chapter to talk about how we respond to them properly. Okay? Verse 17, But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, in that they were saying to you, In the last time there shall be mockers following after their own lusts. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, build yourselves up on your most holy spirit, most holy faith, praying to the Holy Spirit, keeping yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus to eternal life. 
we need to worry about us and making sure that we have an environment and we speak to people to be positive and uplifting. We may have to have discussions that are not going to be any fun when people start to stray. But that's covered in the next sections. 22, have mercy on some who are doubting. When you run across someone in the church that is having issues with how something is being done, speak with them. Don't just say, oh, that's just the way things are. Find out what's bothering them. Find out how to make them understand. And perhaps that's the time to find some place to change. Okay? Have mercy. Save others, snatching them out of the fire. And on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment that pollutes the flesh. Okay? So you've got the doubters. You've got those who are on a very active path to hell, i.e. the fire. Those are the people that are in rebellion. Those are the people that when you see them heading down and beginning to reject the church and to reject God, those are the ones you need to reach out to grab and bring back to the church. Don't let them out. Or at least try. You cannot force people to come to church unless they're your children, in which case that doesn't actually count. Right? And then you finally you have, have mercy on, with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. Sometimes you have to, if people are far enough gone, you just have to tell them that they're in sin and be clear about it and that you cannot continue to associate with them. Okay? They're always welcome back in the church if they are willing to be forgiven and to repent. But unrepentance is poison. And to put it in the church and to willingly put it in the church is exceptionally dangerous. So when you have someone who has gone to the point where they are in full rebellion, they, that needs to be communicated to them that we love you, but we cannot associate with you at this time. And if you ever want to talk, please call me up and we will talk about it, but I'm not going to be trying to, I'm not going to hurt the rest of the body with that. So, all right. Finally, we have the, the benediction here. And I actually made it longer than I thought I was going to. Um, standard, fairly standard epistle closing. You're going to see, you've seen this in other books. But I still love the way that he talks and he speaks about the power of God in these couple of verses. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling, God's power can keep us from sin if we will reach out, accept that help. Okay? As human beings, we are totally incapable of making those steps and to staying pure as God would have us. But God can give us the power. And to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. If you are a child of God, eventually you are going to get to heaven and get to stand in front of God, blameless with joy. Now, that 
is an amazing thought. I, I, I can't even really get my mind around that whole idea. It's, it's like one of those great big trees that, you know, they talk about how many men would take to wrap their arms around it in, out west. I, I get my arm like, you know, a little bit around just that, that edge to understand that particular statement that we will be able to stand before God blameless. That is an amazing gift that we in no way deserve. But he gives us to us anyway. 25, final verse. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now, and forever. All power and authority is his. We should remember that. We should be glad for it. 